This is a recording of a session from an ST628 paediatric study day with Dr. Jamie Campbell talking about all the things they don't tell you about being a consultant. Have fun. So uh, we're going to talk about um, becoming a consultant because all of you guys should be at least ST6. So your last two years. So therefore, if you haven't already been thinking about it, then you really should be thinking about it now. Not necessarily that you have to become a consultant, but you should be thinking about where your career is going because even if you're less than full-time, you've probably only got a few years left. So it's worth thinking about it early because otherwise you suddenly are unemployed. It's a, it's a bit scary, yeah? um, So first thing, you don't necessarily have to be, become a consultant, and I think increasingly the paediatric um, workforce is, is going to be changing, and I think there's going to be lots of other options. So um, consultant is only one of those, and I think there's probably going to be increasing roles for specialists, staff grades, and associate specialists, and things like that. Um, but if, if you do want to become a consultant, I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, what happened with me and how it happened. So I am um, Jamie Campbell and I'm a consultant here in acute and general paediatrics and high dependency in the high dependency unit. And I CCT'd uh, about um, three or four years ago and I've been a consultant since just before that. I'll talk about why that is and how that works as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you become a consultant, how you can plan for it, how to get that job, how to get through the interview process and the application process, and then after you get the job, what's it like? What's it actually like being a consultant? Because it's quite, it's the sort of thing no one ever tells you. Um, and I'll also talk about stuff which I thought I would have been nice if people had talked a little bit about when I was a trainee, which is stuff no one ever tells you about. Things that just doesn't come up the rest of the time. Okay, so becoming a consultant, we're going to talk about thinking about it, planning for it, applying and interviewing, how to get a job. We're going to talk a little bit about job planning, but I think there's going to be a little bit of crossover between what I'm going to talk about and what um, Sam and Andrew are going to talk about later, because I think they're talking to you about leadership and job planning. So there'll be a slight crossover, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, because this, is, this talk is my personal experience and my personal view. So you will always get a different opinion and a different take from other people, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good idea to get a wide variety of opinions when you're thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and what's it actually like? Okay, so some of you will have done this. Who knows what this is? It's a start. It's a start. GP training, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's in the GP building, which I've never been to. And it's very posh. I think it's a lot posher than the Royal College of Pediatrics. Yeah. Um, so this is really, the idea of this assessment was that uh, it would start you thinking about what you need to do before you become a consultant. In the chairs. Yeah, there's loads of chairs in the corner. So. Um, it's supposed to be not an exam, and it isn't. It's a formative assessment. And I think, I was a bit annoyed about it. I was one of the first groups to go through it. Or if, I think we were the first year to to have to do it. They run it as a pilot in a couple of years before us. And I was a bit like miffed, I have to say, that I was going to have to do it. But I took them at their word. So David Evans, who's the Vice President of Assessment at the college, said this isn't an exam. You shouldn't revise for it. This is going to tell you what you need to do to become a consultant. So I just took him at his word and didn't do any work and just went along. Right? And 
I think if you do it like that, it is useful. If you treat it as an exam, then it's a waste of your time. If you spend all your time revising for it and reading stuff, it's, it's not very helpful. The idea should be that you get some feedback afterwards going, you know, you're really good in this area, but you've clearly never thought about this. And then you go, oh, okay, shit, you're right, I never thought about that. I'll go on a course, I'll read up on it, I'll do this or that. So that's how it should work. Um, <coughs> but I know that not everyone treats it like that. Some people do see it as a sort of exit exam or whatever, and it's not intended to be like that. Okay. Um, experience. So, um, before you start thinking about getting a consultant job, before you get one, it's a good idea to have tried it out, right? So, it's a good idea to do some acting up. So, at your grade, you should all be able to start doing this. Plan it out with your educational supervisor and do some acting up. You need to do it in a good way, though. So, there's lots of people who just get dunked on, right? You're covering the service week and then that's it, and it's just carnage, you don't learn anything, and by the end of it, you want to quit medicine altogether. <laughs> don't do it like that. So plan out well in advance, protect yourself, make sure that you're doing it for training and not because there's a gap in the road Okay. So sit down, look at a week when both you and your supervisor are free, preferably or whoever's going to sort of support you, and say, right, this is how we're going to do it. Say how you'd like to do it. So some people who are really confident or just want to do the whole lot on their own and then just touch base with their supervisor you know, at the end of each day or at the end of the week even. Well, some people would like to have their supervisor there hovering in the background. But just say what you want. So voice it and say, look, this for me, it would be really good to do it like this. I've seen it work both ways. Um, I've worked a lot on PICU and it's, it was, it's done really well on PICU. It's been done for years. People were acting up and they really encourage it for their senior training. And I've seen it work both ways. So some of the consultants just cannot help themselves <laughs> but interfere. And I've seen some of the trainers get really annoyed with that. And then some of them will just sit in the office for the whole week and just be there if you need them. So say what you want, because it's for you, it's for your benefit. But it's a really, really good um, thing to do. It looks good on your CV, it looks good on your application forms, it looks good when you come to your ARCP. But more importantly, it's a, it, will, it gets you in the right frame of mind for become a consultant, which is making decisions and being ultimately responsible for them. Okay, so that's just sort of acting up within your post, okay? but there is another sort of acting up, which is actually becoming a consultant and taking on the job as a consultant, and the college allows, you don't need to read this, I'll just put it up for whatever purposes, um, the college allows you to do that within six months of your CCT. So you have to do it with the agreement of your educational supervisor, so they have to agree that it's a suitable thing for you to do, that you're ready to do it, and they'll sign a form, and the college, and your head of school, I think, has to sign that form, and then it goes to the college, and they say, yeah, okay, you can accept this job, and then you can work as a consultant <coughs> for those six months up until your CCT. So I did this, so that's why I was a consultant before my CCT date. And when I went to my final ARCP, I'd already been working as a consultant for about four or five months, something like that. Um, it's a really, really good thing to do if you can do it. So if you notice that in your department, someone is going on maternity leave or, uh, you know, whatever, and you're within six months of your CCT, you know, tell say, I'd like to do that, that'd be really good. Um, it's a fantastic sort of introduction, if you like. in that 
role? Is your normal supervisor still... Yes, so the college say you have to retain your supervisor. So you basically work as a consultant, but you must retain your supervisor. You have to keep your portfolio up to date. It's much easier to do that because you're working as a consultant. So everything you write on there looks great. And you've got the time to do it as well. Um, But yeah, you have to keep your supervisor and you have to go to your ARCP. You're still a trainee. Usually your job will make some provision for things like... Um, you know, like when you're on call, there will usually be a sort of backup person who you can phone for advice, or um, you know, when you're on service, there'll be another person who's around to help if you need them, that kind of thing. Can the trust just appoint you, or would it have to be like a kind of interview type of process if there was, say, a maternity leave post? Yeah, so usual HR rules apply. So I was interviewed, yeah, and paid, <coughs> I was paid as a consultant. But I can't guarantee that that will happen. <laughs> uh, it's a slightly contentious point because I'm aware that other people have done this and have been kept, been kept on their trainee contract. So I think it's a grey area. Although <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have got pay cut, I think you get pay cut. Yes, you get pay cut, yeah. So you're paid as you go, that's Yeah, it depends what hours you're doing. So um, yeah, it depends whether you're being appointed to a 10 PA job or whatever. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. But yeah, you're right, it doesn't necessarily. So stepping up in a unit means that would you automatically be a consultant after you finish your training the same unit or would you go to the interview process again? No, so um, I was appointed um, for a locum of six months. I had a, a contract for six months, which was coincidentally anyway when my training finished. So all my contracts were done at that point. And um, whilst I was a consultant, I then, because I was still a trainee and uh, I was still going to my ACPs and blah, 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 and the dean really sent me my placement for when my post finished, which was a grace period job. So when you finish your SCA, you get grace period. Um, and they usually give you at least six months, I think they have to give you, but often there's gaps, right? So I'm sure they'll be happy to give 12 months, but not normally more than that. And then you're sort of unemployed. Um, but they gave me for my grace period job was my previous job in the same department as a registrar. So I politely declined <laughs> that. It was obviously, they knew I was going to decline it, and we all know the rubbish, and they just did it. So, no, I then had to, well, then I was going to be unemployed, but they extended my contract because someone went off on maternity. So, yeah, just kind of happened like that. Um, do you mean uh, within your training yeah. role? Yes. So that that's basically however you want to do it. So talk about it with your yeah, we talk about it with your So um, you absolutely can do that. So you can act up for the day rather than the whole week. In fact, normally that's usually how it starts because it's much easier to do to plan out one day than it is to plan out a whole week because you're you're still on the rotor. So I have done some acting up within the job and I've done it for like three days. Um, and I did it the wrong way. So you know I was saying don't get shoved into a covering it because someone's sick. Well, that's what happened to me. One of the consultants went off sick and they, no one was available to cover it. They just went, right, Jamie, you're acting up. Yeah. So it was not the best. Yeah. So if you can plan it out, it's much better. You get more out of it. Okay. So then you see a job and you think, well, oh, I'd like to apply for that. Uh, actually, let's think about before this bit. So getting consultants jobs um, it's a good idea if you think about it early there's kind of different types of how consultants jobs come up so the first is the old sort of fashion way someone retires and therefore they need a new consultant so it's a sort of direct replacement 
and that will happen periodically, but you know, it's not always happening. Um, but you might hear about that, so you might be aware of a department where you want to work, and someone's getting old and they're thinking about retiring, and you're right, yeah, I'm going to go for that. Uh, and then the other type of job is a new post which is created, and that's because a department needs new people, perhaps they're getting busier, or they want to start a new service, or they started a new service but it's really busy and they need other people, um, so a new post, okay. So those are the kind of two main different types of posts. Um, I think the main thing is to have a think about where you'd like to work and what you'd like to do. So people generally fall into one of two categories. Either they really want to work in one particular place and they don't really mind what they do. So like, I really, really want to work in Bristol because I've got a season ticket for Bristol City and it's going to be a hell of a commute to get to games if I'm living in Taunton or wherever. Or, uh, I don't care where I work, but I really want to do oncology. That's all I want to do. So, you know, I don't care. I'll go to Taunton, I'll go down to Truro, I don't care. I just really want to do it. So you kind of need to have a think about which one of those two categories you want to fall into, <coughs> think about where you'd like to work, what you'd like to do. Once you've sort of decided that, then you need to start talking to people, okay? You need to make people aware that you are there and what grade you're at. Now, I promise you, consultants are... They're, they're sort of uh, focused on their own problems, right? <laughs> Unless you sort of start knocking on the door, they won't automatically think about you, right? Um, so you, you just need to say that, oh, I'm approaching the end of my training. I'd be really interested in this job. Right? When you start talking to people about that and if they like you, then they will start thinking about, oh, I really like this person. I wonder how we could create an opportunity. Now, if it's a person retiring, okay, that's a bit more straightforward. Those, those new posts, often they are created because they like the trainee and they want them to come and work with you. So it's like, oh, I wonder if we could do that. If we took some PAs from here and we've got some PAs from there, we could create a little job for that person. But that won't happen if you're not talking to those people. And it takes a long time, right? So my post was created like that as a separate way. There's no one retiring. HD is a new specialty. So it was created. And I we've been talking about it for probably four years before it happened. Maybe even longer. It was mentioned when I was in SHO as a kind of, well, oh, HDU is a good thing to go into. We're going to be creating some HDUs. And then when I was a registrar, then it was full on that you keep doing this, we'll try and create a job for you. And then it was two years from saying, we're going to try and create a new post to get in the funding and advertising. So it takes a while. So that's why you need to be thinking about this early, talking to people early. It's really slow. Um, the process of getting the money, particularly. All right, but once that job's advertised, so um, all jobs, uh, including that local post, that what I did, are advertised on NHS jobs. So if you've never looked at the NHS jobs website, go and do it, okay? So you need to go and have a look at that. Just click on whatever consultant's post you like, um, preferably something vaguely relevant, but they're pretty much the same, okay, the form. So have a look through the form. Look through the form, because that's how you need to start thinking about your CV, all right, and your portfolio, if you like. The form is divided, it's bloody long, is the first thing I'd say. So if you, again, this happened to me, I was told the job's out, you've got to apply for it, you've got like a week to fill in this form, because we need to get a standard that's soon. It takes a lot longer to do that, it's a really long form. So there's loads and loads of different boxes, so you need to start thinking about your CV in terms of what can I do to fill in those boxes. Now when I was a trainee, in my head for some reason I had 
oh god, I've just got loads, I've got to get research, I've got shit of research, I don't really like it, and I've got no publications, oh, I'm going to have a terrible CV, uh, what am I going to do? That's one box. In fact, it's not even a box, because it's research and uh, QI and audit all lumped in together. So it doesn't matter, I just put in my QI and audit. So don't worry about that. Like, I, I was really worried about that until I saw the form, and actually, I need no worry at all. It's worth nothing. I think research is Sorry? Research is separate. It asks you for five areas of change. Five areas of change, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is relevant as well if you're applying to a job which involves research. Mm -hmm. So then it is important. But I mean, for general paediatric jobs, or a lot of jobs, it not, isn't necessarily important. And it has a list of like, procedures, which I guess is irrelevant to us. Yeah, again, so if you're a surgeon, you need to put down you've done 20 whatever, I don't know, you know, uh, Whatever you want. Um, the word I was looking for. Right, so yeah, so these are the, the sort of areas that um, are on all the entry, and the forms are really standardised, so it's, like, it's not necessarily relevant to each job. So they want all your jobs to date, and what they want is relevant experience. So you, you sort of do a little note about how that was useful, how that was relevant. So it obviously becomes less and less relevant the more junior you go. So you concentrate on your more recent jobs and say, right, I've been ST8 in um, respiratory medicine at the children's hospital and I did five acting up, days where I acted up as a consultant and I took the lead and I learned how to run the acute service and I learned how to prioritise and manage the trainees or something like that. Right. Management and leadership. So there's a you know there's big boxes just on this stuff. And if you've not there's a real tendency to just ignore that when you're a trainee, but then if you do ignore it then you've got nothing to put in that box. So you need to think about what management and leadership roles you can talk about and it's not just about putting the name of the role you need to put what you learned from it and what you achieved from it so um, I mean like I hate management like I really it's just not my thing but you have to do it because it's part of what being a consultant is about so when we're you know emailing around or does anyone want fancy doing this you know JDC representative or senior trainee or whatever uh, it's good for you guys to do because you can then talk about it. Examples of change and they wanted three examples of change and what you learned from each. So you need to think what, what three things have you changed in work and uh, how, what did you learn from them. So then what was the process of it. Examples of team working you need to put down. There's a whole box for that. There's a whole box for teaching and then a box for research QI so when you're thinking about your CV and your training it's really useful to have seen this form because then you can think about what areas you know you might have done loads of teaching but you've not done any sort of examples of, you can't think of any examples when you changed practice so then you need to concentrate on that for a little bit Do you fill out as one form and then you just like send it to different job applications? Yes you can do so the, the website has the ability to save it as a um, as a draft and then if you apply for another job, it automatically uploads it. Which you've got to be careful of. You have to be very careful that you haven't typed, I really, really love, uh, the reason I want this job is because I really, really love Cornwall. And it's a beautiful <laughs> place and the people there are fantastic. And you're applying to Edinburgh, whatever. Well, so you just need to be careful. Sorry? Is there like a white space? Like, so the bit to write, there's 1,500 words of supporting yeah, information. Yeah. The there's like a personal statement. It's either called personal statements or Supporting, like that. Information. supporting information yeah. why you're applying for this job basically um, 
and you do want to make that specific. So yes, you'll need to rewrite it for each job. But all the like the, the thing which takes the time is writing down every bloody job you've ever done and all the supervisors. So the, the, the advantage of this website is that you don't have to write that all again when you're doing the next job. So it is useful. So four, yes, so right right right. quite a good practice to go through. Yeah, yeah. And they said having, although it's a real pain in the house for every single job, they need to jump to any bit on your CV. Yes. Yes. So that's a really useful yeah. thing so to use. This form is designed to get you shortlisted and get you to the interview. It then becomes not irrelevant, <coughs> but much less relevant. Okay. So this is just to get you into that bit. I mean, it, everything in training and in life really is all about playing the game and jumping through the next two. So you just constantly, you know, you've got to get through this hoop so that you can get to the interview so that you can get the job. It's the same way that you've got to do those exams so that you can get to ST4 or something. You know, it's the same process, right? So you're all used to doing this stuff. But yeah, you've got to play the game, get this to get the interview. And you're right, when you do your CV, it then shouldn't contain all this crap because they don't want to read the same thing. Your CV is then very short and snappy with highlights of your, your best bits, your perhaps your career, okay? Um, and they don't always ask for your CV when you come to interview, but I did send one, and it was like that. It was a short, snappy highlights thing because it's easier to read. You know, not all the people on the panel have bothered to read everything. I'm going to be honest with you. Okay, sometimes when you do interviews, the first we've ever heard of you is at the interview, right? And then we just flip through and see it. So it's much easier to flip through a CV than it is through this 1,500-word nonsense. Okay, but you've got to do it because you've got to get your interview. Okay, so interviews. Um, I'll tell you about how mine works, but this does vary. Okay, so different trusts do it in a different way. And I, you know, I've only got experience of this trust. So University Hospitals, Bristol's interviews are all the same, and they're all quite old-fashioned. Um, other trusts, I think, are a bit more modern and are doing things like whole days of psychometric testing and being interviewed by um, panels of children is a common thing I've heard about. Uh, you know, for pediatricians, obviously. Pathology or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Forensic pathology, not so much. Um, so, but yeah, so the, our hospital is quite old fashioned, right? So it takes the form of uh, a presentation, a 10 minute, 10 minute presentation of a topic that they give you followed by an absolute grilling by a large panel of people in a very old-fashioned way, all right? Um, As in, would you give, were you given the presentation all day to do it to No, you're given usually a week uh, to prepare, yeah. It has been less. <laughs> Some people have been given a few days, but you're supposed to be given at least a week. Because for grid, so one of my grid posts, you were given it, on, you were given it like no, it's not like that. No. The idea is you should have thought about this. In fact, more than thought about this, you should have talked to people about it, a lot of people. It's usually quite a generic um, or um, sort of non-specific topic. And so you can kind of go with it how you want to. So mine was like really sort of woolly. So it was like, you know, how do we improve general paediatrics in the current financial climate? Which is like a sort of non topic is it's basically talk to us about general pediatrics. Um, I, I have heard of some more specific ones, so I remember a pick one being uh, what do you see the future of ECMO in this country? 
they're like really specific. Um, and most of them have been like that. How, how can we improve our service at this hospital? Like, like that. So you need to talk to people, or come on to that, um, about what you're going to say. Okay. Uh, it's a really scary thing, is it? I mean, it's terrifying. It's probably the most terrifying thing. It's more scary than finals by a factor of 100. And finals are pretty scary, aren't they? So uh, it, it, the more you can prepare and the more you can practice, the more you can alleviate that stress. But you can't alleviate it completely. I mean, I didn't sleep for about three weeks, I think, before, before my... Okay. Presentation. I mean, you get so um, you've only got 10 minutes, it's like quite short, or at least our presentation, but I think other trusts, when they do it, it's quite similar. So um, you haven't got a lot of time, and uh, it's, people are forming a sort of overall impression of you. The presentation is not the most important part of the interview. Okay? You cannot get the job based on the presentation. You get the job based on the grilling from the large panel. They're the guys that make the decision. The people on my panel, only two of them have been at my presentation, but there was 20 people in the room for my presentation. So it's, it's not that important. However, you could lose a job on a presentation. So if you fuck it up, you could lose the job. So if you say something awful or do something really stupid and they mark you really badly, they will take that into account when they're deciding at the end of the interview in the afternoon whether they give you the, give you the job. If you're, for example, very close to another candidate, and they go, oh, how did they do in the interviews? Oh, he really balls that up. Then you could lose a job that way. But it's, it's, it feels more significant because you're up there talking to people, but it doesn't count for nearly as much as the interview in the afternoon. Um, but you still want to get off to a good start. You, you know, if, you do get, if you do a good presentation and people seem into it, then it gives you a bit of confidence for the afternoon. And a lot of the stuff that you're going to talk about, particularly with those generic questions, in your presentation, you'll be talking about in much more detail in the afternoon panel session. So um, it's it's still important, but it's just it doesn't get you the job. Uh, yeah, avoid overly wordy slides. So basically, you know, when you whenever you've been to presentations or lectures or conferences or whatever, you know what it's like. People put up slides with millions of things. Just you can't you don't remember anyway. It's a waste of time. Right? You just want pictures, really, or some or a graph or something to illustrate the point. You want people looking at you. You don't want people looking at your slides. Uh, avoid loads of bullet points. That was a tip I was given. <laughs> well, I've forgotten I did that. <laughs> I must be really bored on the weekend. Um, yeah, some people get really annoyed about this, and they will mark you down if you do weird stuff on your slides. So just some pictures illustrating and there's some clip artwork in my interview I got told not to do this and to do this by two different people <laughs> I had pictures of my kids and uh, it was illustrating they were doing something which was illustrating the point I was making uh, and it worked really well but some people think that's not you should use more generic sort of clip art type stuff but I prefer to have it a bit more personal so uh, but yeah there's just pictures there's no real words and, and when you do have words on the slides it's just a couple of main points that you want to make Okay, so. so yes, no, so you absolutely should. All you guys should be asking to go to. You need to be invited, okay, this is the first thing. Um, the trust will usually invite all of the consultants within that division, um, but it's up to the 
person who's running the interview. So usually the clinical lead for that specialty that's advertised will send an invite. They're supposed to send it to all the consultants in the hospital, but they often sort of forget or a bit disorganised or it doesn't happen or whatever. So if you know that there's a job coming up, go and find the clinical lead for that department saying, please can you invite me back to come? So I went to um, two or three presentations before my own one. And it's really, I mean, it's really useful. It's one of the best things you can do. You're not going to be allowed to sit on an interview panel, unfortunately. Um, but you can go to the presentation. And it gives you a really good idea of maybe what doesn't work. Okay, you see people make mistakes and like, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. But yeah, totally, definitely, a really, that's a really good tip. Okay, so uh, after my interview, people kept asking me for my top interview tips. And I've written them down and I've got them on a Word file and I can send it to you. But this these is basically it. So uh, firstly, don't download lots of stuff. So there, there was a thing for a while where people thought that consultants' interviews were knowing everything, you know, the important thing was to know everything about the machinations of the NHS. So if you didn't know this white paper on, like, I don't know, restructuring of foundation trusts, and you didn't know this government thing on this and this, then you, you wouldn't you'd fail the interview. It's just absolute nonsense. I mean, I don't know where that came from, but like, I went on interview courses where people had vast leverage files of every sort of you know government edict on the NHS. It's just absolute bollocks. You just do not need that tool. So don't do it. It's a complete waste of your time. Do you that's regional though. No. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose a lot of people around the country are writing interviews, and no, it's not. Why would they appoint someone who knows about that? Like, if you're applying for a job at a CCG, or you want to be the work in the Department of Health, yeah, by all means, know about that stuff. They're not appointing you for that. They're appointing you to be a consultant in their trust. So they want to know about you. They don't want to know about what the last health secretary wrote, which is probably going to change in six months anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's just not useful. You need to be aware of the themes, though. Okay? So you should be aware that, for example, uh, the mid-staff's inquiry is important to how we work nowadays in the NHS and what were the big themes from that. You, know, you need to be aware of those kind of things. You need to be aware of the implications for our work of the Victoria Columbia case and the Baby Pia case and things like that. But you don't need to know the exact, you know, what the name of that report was and what the date was and all this kind of stuff. It's the general themes. You know, you need to know that, for example, after the Mid-Staffs Inquiry, one of the main conclusions was that um, people had lost their compassion. Well, why, why is that? You know, and in my interview, for example, I got asked, how do you... That, so that was the frame of it. You know, in the mid-staffs inquiry, people talked a lot about... Uh, the conclusion was that staff had lost their compassion. How do you show your compassion when you come to work? So it was about me. It wasn't about that stuff, because they want to know about you. Again, Before your interview meet and chat with loads of people I mean loads, as many people as you can, before you go and meet them, ask around who are the best people to meet, because some people are more useful than others, but the more people you talk to from a wider variety of backgrounds, the better when you're doing that, you are creating content for your presentation and for your answers in the afternoon um, it's uh, yeah, so that's what you're doing, you're building content. So um, what you want to do is talk to people from different areas of where you're going to work. So don't just talk to doctors, don't just talk to consultants, talk to nurses, both senior and junior. Talk to managers, um, 
talked to all different people. I went round and spoke to the operations lead, I spoke to the head of nursing for all the different What did you ask them, Jenny? Like, did you say, what are the stresses on your current job, or what are the, what's the plan for the department, or what's the main issue at the moment that you're dealing with? Or let them talk about what they... What just let them talk? Yeah. Try not to get them to interview you. So, again, when you go around and see these people, there seems to be a misunderstanding that this is part of your interview process and that they're interviewing you. You need to get over that real quick. Um, you're trying to get information from them to put as content in your answers when you get asked later. Okay. So it's what do you see as the big problems in this hospital? Um, you know, how do you think things work? From you know, when you look at the consultants here, what do you think they do well? Do what do you think they do badly? That kind of stuff. Um, you know, I went and talked to people in the switchboard. I went and talked to people in like the offices and stuff. Like, different things. Okay, it just makes your answers stand out. So that when you're in the interview, you can say, oh yeah, I spoke to Rachel Hughes and she was talking about the problems with flow from ED upstairs and you know, she was saying we should do this and I think it's a really good idea and actually I could help with that because I did this. Yeah. That's how you then structure your answers. And by all means, name drop those people that you've spoken to. So in the interviewer's minds, they can already see you in the post because you're talking about people they know and you're talking about the place where they work and they can go, oh, I can see Dan, he's spoken to Rachel, he knows how this works. I can see, I can, that makes it easy, it's an easier psychological jump for them to appoint you. It's a little sort of psychological trick which I was taught, I'll tell you about. Oh yeah, we're going to come on to it. Um, okay, another good tip I was given which was prepare your first question. So, pretty much all the panel interviews, wherever they are, they'll, they'll all be slightly different depending on the type of the job, okay? So if it's very research based, they're going to be talking to you a lot about that. General paediatrics, they're going to be talking more about leadership and things like that. Um, but they pretty much always start off with a, the same standardised first question, and that's for your benefit, to help ease you in. Um, and it's usually tell us about your training, tell us about your career, or talk us through your CV, or something general like that. But it, I mean, basically, it's all the same question, just worded differently. So it's the one question where you can prepare, you can almost write a script out and prepare it. The other questions, you don't want it to be like that, okay? It's more like a conversation. So it should be a little bit back and forth, and your, your, the way you talk should be conversational style. Uh, you know, you're not presenting. It shouldn't be like a viva. Um, it shouldn't be, you know, giving correct answers to things. There's no such thing. It's a conversation. They're trying to learn about you. But the first question you can prepare, and it just gives you a little bit of confidence. So I wrote a script out for that, and basically kind of learned it off by heart. And then... You know, even if you sort of, you know, you're ner really nervous and you're sweating and you're shaking and stuff, you can at least get that one out of the way and then you settle into it and then it's a bit easier. Okay, my top tip from, from my experience is, is to make it personal, right? Talk about yourself. It's quite easy to talk about the place you're going to work in or the NHS in general and use generalities and because teamwork's so important, you, you say we a lot and you talk about the team and things like that that's great but what they really want to know is why they should appoint you specifically you rather than Dave who's going to be interviewed next so you need to talk about yourself so if you find you're not saying I or me and that a lot in your answers then you're probably doing it wrong okay um, and to find that out you need to practice a lot and then you need to practice some more it's the only way you get good at this stuff and it's it's something we don't do because 
you guys have been in a run-through training scheme, so you're not like the surgeons or the anaesthetists or whatever who've had to reapply for things. Um, some of you would have done, you might have gone and done MDs or PhDs, whatever you might have had to do, interviews or grids and things. But um, for a lot of us, myself included, I didn't do any interviews from my when I got my PEDS placement up until my consultant's block. So you need to practice. Uh, I would thoroughly recommend uh, this guy. Full disclaimer, I don't get any money from him for recommending, but he's pretty incredible. So he's a guy called Narlin, who uh, was a consultant paediatrician in Southampton, Portsmouth area, and got into this kind of stuff, and has now quit his job and does this full time. So all he does is prepare people for interviews. Um, so he coached me, and he's coached, I don't know, like, low, countless people now in the Children's Hospital and in the Bristol area uh, to get their jobs. And his success rate is pretty phenomenal. Um, so what he does is get, it's just this, it's practice. And you can either go down and meet him, and you can sit with him and, in Portsmouth if you want and do it face-to-face. But what most people do, what I did, is um, sessions on Skype. So he does one-and-a-half-hour sessions and did four of those before my interview. Uh, and he just asks you questions, and then he just changes things little by little. So you go, that's an all right answer, but what you need to do is you should be saying I a little bit more, you should be doing this a little bit more, talk about this a little bit more, and he just tweaks your answers a little bit. And then over the course of those four sessions, you get more confident, you get more used to talking about yourself. It's very, very awkward talking about yourself initially. It's embarrassing. Like we're all nice paediatricians, right? We're not surgeons, we're not, we don't love ourselves. It feels weird to say how great you are, and you just have to get over that. Like, you just have to get over it. And it is weird and it's awkward. And so, the only way to get over that is to practice. So, uh, you know, you don't have to go with this, but you can go on these other interview courses. Um, I went on another one, that one I said about in London. It's all right. I mean, you know, they had some good points, and you've got a little bit of practice. And I, what was useful was I got to watch the other people in the course practice. So, you learn from their good and bad points. Um, but I've said a sort of introduction. If you're going to spend just one bit of money, I would definitely do it with this. It's much more personal. It's just you and him. What's the amount of money, is it? Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> not cheap. I think his was, because it's so long ago I did it, it was like five or 500 quid, something like that, 600 quid. But those courses in London are like 900 quid anyway. And it's all specialties, not just pizza. Yeah, anything. It's just good luck. Um, it was fortuitous it's that he's a pediatrician. But... I mean, actually, I don't think it is that fortuitous. He, it means he knows what's on my CV, but to be honest, it's irrelevant. The interviews. You sign up onto his website, you get the first 90 minutes of his deep lectures, lectures yeah, yeah, that yeah, he's yeah. made free. Yeah. And then I think if you want one on one stuff. There's example yeah. interview questions, then, stuff like then, that. Then you pay for it. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there's two bits of money. You can either pay for the course, which is like YouTube videos, um, or pay for him and you get the course free, I think. The really the beneficial bit is the one-on-one tutoring. Okay. Okay. So I think Andrew's going to talk a, um, a bit, or oh, a lot more about this later on. But I'll just briefly mention it because I didn't know any of this stuff until I became a consultant. So what is a consultant's job? So a consultant's contract, which is probably going to change, has been in negotiation for years. Uh, but anyway, as it is. We work in what's called programmed activities. So it's a bit like, you've probably heard of GPs doing sessions. Uh, so they get paid for a, an activity, a chunk of their time, during which time they do whatever. 
and the activities are it's obviously a ridiculous system because all consultants do completely different work so they've had to agree on what a lump of activity is and obviously that's completely different for a surgeon an anaesthetist a pathologist a paediatrician or you know a psychiatrist so they have someone has agreed that one ward round equals this amount of time one clinic equals this amount of time etc etc so it's a little bit of nonsense but that's what it is so um, 10 of those activities is considered a full time job alright so uh, uh, mostly jobs are either advertised as full time which are 10 PAs or less than full time which is either 6 or 7 PAs Um, the recommendation haha is that seven and a half of those are what are called DCC or direct clinical care, which is where you are directly looking after patients. So that's ward rounds, clinics. Uh, it can be other things like X-ray meetings of direct clinical care. Um, I know pathology meetings would be that sort of stuff. Would be direct clinical care. And then the other bit of that ten PA, so two and a half, is made up of something called SPA, which is supporting professional activities. And that's because it's recognised that the medical profession is something where you continually need to train and improve yourself and revalidate and learn for the rest of your career. So that's what that's for. So it's for things like teaching. It's for going on APLS courses. It's for going to conferences. It's for going on a course or doing this or that. It can be for any number of different things. So that doesn't include things like your clinic admin? No, that's under DCC. But it's for educational supervision. Yeah. If you're doing yeah. Educational yeah. supervision. But how much of which is which mm-hmm. and how much it counts for is up to the trust. This is just the BMA's advice, right? And I can tell you that this two and a half SPAs does not exist in most places. Now, the way it works in this country is that trusts use these as a kind of currency. So, in places which are popular to work in, you'll notice this shrinks and this increases, all right? So I get one and a half SPAs, which is sort of reasonable for a popular place to work like Bristol. If you go to uh, the South Wales valleys, where some of my mates work, they're on two and a half SPAs. And I think some rural places in Scotland, they're pushing over two and a half SPAs. And that's to attract people in, because uh, people don't want to work there. So, uh, again, if you're thinking about where you want to work, and you're thinking, oh, I'd quite like to do loads of teaching and go to loads of conferences and have a nice sort of bit more relaxed lifestyle, you know, go to those unpopular places and you'll get a fantastic contract like this. It's something you might want to think about. So, your college tutor, where would that fit in there? That's extra. So, do you yeah. get paid for that? Tagged on, yes. Okay. So, there are, so this, is your, this is your contract that you're given by the trust to work. And then there are other roles which get added on. So, for example, yes, I'm a college tutor for the hospital, and that's an extra PA which is added into my job plan. Or let's say if you were clinical lead for your department, there's a varying amount of money which comes attached to that as well. And there's loads and loads of different stuff. It gets ridiculously complicated, and it's the thing that causes the most politics and arguments in departments and in hospitals is how job plans work. Do you have a CPD budget as part of your SPA? Or do you, it's like you need to go on MLS yes, or APS? Yes, study budget. So you have a study Same budget? Same as you guys. It's perfect. And how is it audited that you are in fact doing all of these things? 
AJ, yeah. oh, sorry, AJLS is funded by ALSG, not by the uh, trust. But yes, if I was going to uh, conference. Do you want to go to conference or? Sorry. So um, you have a, meet, a sit-down meeting at periodical uh, intervals with your clinical lead, <coughs> and then it's signed off by the clinical director. So you sit down and they go, right, uh, these are the, we expect you to be doing 27 clinics on a Tuesday every year. It's annualised, everything's annualised, so you get given a, a sort of uh, Excel spreadsheet with, like, it's like a, a rotor basically, and uh, on mine it will say, Right, every Wednesday I have to do, out of over a whole year I have to do 27 rapid access clinics or whatever it might be, or three weeks of general PE service I do, and I do 10 weeks of HDU service, and you have to achieve that throughout a year. Um, how much they keep an eye on it, um, I've heard various different things, like some, I, you know, it's possible people can sit down and say, show me your clinics that you've done. Or, you know, but I'm more thinking about your professional development stuff. So that comes down to appraisal and revalidation. So remember that once you've finished all your horrific getting your portfolio and getting everything tagged and convincing the DME that you deserve to progress to whatever year, ST7, ST8, uh, it does end. It carries on for the rest of your life. Okay. So um, it used to, you know, back in the day when you became a consultant, you could forget about that and not have to worry about it. But those days are long gone. And it's not very different. I mean, I think our appraisal process is probably similar, about as much work as I did in my training. All right. It's slightly less annoying in that we don't have to do, for example, so many DOPs or so many <coughs> CBDs or whatever. So it's a little bit more self-directed. You know, what you put in your appraisal is kind of up to you, but you have to do it. So once a year, you sit down with your appraiser. So each trust has their own system for this. Within our trust, we use something called 14 Fish, that's our new portfolio, and that's because the trust paid for that, so that's what we use. And it's quite easy to use, it's on my phone. And if, for example, today I've done this session, I'll go on my phone and say, oh, I've talked to the trainees about becoming a consultant, and I'll put that down. And then it gets logged, and then once a year, I sit down with an appraiser, and that changes every three years, or it has to change every three years. It can change every year, but it has to change every three years, so that you're not just in cahoots with one person. And uh, they go through your portfolio of what you've done over the last year. It's often an opportunity to have a little bit of a careers advice, basically. So the people who are appraisers tend to be more senior consultants, and um, but they obviously themselves are having appraisers as well. So it doesn't always work like that. Everyone has appraisers, right? So you sit down with them, and you go through everything, and they check that you're doing your CPD and whatever. And then they agree, yes, you're okay, uh, you know, particularly for another year. And then every four or five years, that all contributes to your revalidation at the GMC. So it all gets sent off. And the, so there's a nominated person in the trust who's your officer for revalidation. And they'll check that you've had an appraisal once a year. Uh, and that you've done some, there's a, there are, I said that you don't have to do DOPS or whatever, but you do. There's, you have to do a 360 appraisal and you have to get a patient 360 appraisal you have to do that but it's only once in that revalidation cycle so it's not nearly as bad as you guys do at the moment um, those appraisals though like I said they're more uh, or I found them to be more careers advice and looking after you than they are when you're a trainee it's a little bit like why haven't you done this you need to evidence this why haven't you done that whereas it's a bit more holistic and wellness shaped so uh, I've had different appraisers and I had um, 
you don't mind me talking about this, these are tight. Addy and Jenkins for a while, who some of you may know is a pick consultant, he did for three years with me, and um, he just used to chat about his boat and definitely <laughs> like random stuff. We'd be there for like three hours, and he'd, you know, just, just chatting about whatever. Uh, and then Tom Hilliard, who was funny enough my supervisor when I was in SHA, but right? he did my proposal this year. And it was more about like, Jamie, are you looking after yourself? Are you getting enough time out of work? Is anything stressing you out? Talking about the internal politics in my department and the hospital, um, making sure, you know, you get into conferences, make sure that they don't screw you over and that you do the service week every time there's a conference or not, you know, that kind of stuff. So it should it's a little bit more positive and a little bit less uh, annoying than it is. Um, yes, there we go. So these are the sort of things that count. I think we talked about this one. So DCCs, when you're on call, ward rounds, clinics, if you're a surgeon that's operating, a multidisciplinary team meetings, count as that. So my spinal meetings, like AT, count as DCC, uh, and your admin time. And then SPA is all those sort of things we talked about. Um, now, although the, the contract says that, whatever I said, seven and a half of your time is this and two and a half of your time is this that doesn't really bear any relevance to reality okay so and you just have to kind of accept that so they say that that's how it works but in reality you may spend all your time doing teaching or management or whatever or admin and then hardly any of the time doing this um, but that's the way you're paid that's how the contracts are set up um, and every job is different so you know some jobs are much more admin heavy than others. Just look at to look at some call or like a night on call, does that is that the same number of PAs? That how, is that, is that no, so it depends is the answer. Okay. So some jobs are sort of full shift like you guys do, in which case yes they are. If you're if you're on a full shift pattern, like some of the neonatal units, some of the general PT units around the country are like this and they do full shifts and then they they do a night shift and that's DCC. So then yes, that is true. But, for example, my job is not like that. We get DCC for a period of the day. So in the summer, for example, on a weekend, we are paid. DCC is up until midday, or one o'clock, I think it is. And in the winter, it's six in the evening. And then after that, but we're on call 24, 48, 72 hours till the Monday evening, whatever that is. So Friday morning till uh, Monday evening. And that's not, we're not paid DCC for that. Um, it appears in our job plan as a supplement, an on-call supplement. So um, it varies. And I think there's a bit of a trade-off in that. So um, some departments decide, well, I'm fucking in all the time anyway. Like, you might be saying to pick you up. I'm in all night anyway. I may as well get paid for it, and then at least I get the next day off. I can take the time back because it's accounted for in my job plan. But then you've got to accept that you're working and I shift there, and you're expected to kind of be in the building and be available to work whatever um, or you might decide well I get two or three phone calls a night it interrupts my sleep but I can kind of live with that I'd rather not have the money just have the uplift I'll live with that that's a better lifestyle and it, it's you know if you go for the full um, shift pattern you've then got to convince the trust to pay for it obviously so there are departments within a hospital that try to do that you have to evidence it you go to the the managers and say, look, we're in all night, you need to pay us for this. Yeah. And then they like, when, at the beginning of your contract, are they quite clear about the number of like, weeks on call? That you yes, it's in your job plan. Your it's job always stated in your job plan. Um, the reason I say job plans are very sort of 
contentious and political and cause a lot of sort of discussion, <laughs> debate or whatever. It's because sometimes people find they're doing stuff which is some people are militant and it only works in their job plan. And they also don't like their job plan changing. So it's like this is the job I was appointed at, that's what I'm gonna do for forty years. I don't care if things have changed, I don't care if we now got to cover this or that, I'm not doing it. That's my job plan, look at it, that's what I'm doing. And sort of legally they sort of have uh, I mean, a sort of right. Like, you know, there is an element of that. This is what you pay to do. But um, some of us are a bit more flexible. So it's like, okay, well, now we're doing this, fine. I don't mind doing that. I don't mind chopping and changing, drop a clinic here, take up an extra shift here or there. Um, but what you need to do is know what your job plan is and keep an eye on it so that you don't get exploited. Yeah, it's there kind of prote- to protect you. You don't want to end up in a job where you're doing tons of work, which is nothing on your job plan. I've been in that situation and it's not very nice. And it's also your first job plan with the most important, isn't it? Because once yes. you agree to that is... You're signed up to it. You're signed up to it and that's your obligation. Yeah. And they don't have a responsibility to change it. That's right. Uh, so yeah. as you agree yeah. that's an acceptable plan, yeah. that is... Usually, it. the first job plan looks very nice because <laughs> that's what they've put in the advert, usually. But be very careful about your first, when you sit down and agree your job plan, to look look for changes between the job plan. So I suddenly, my number of uh, clinics doubled between the advert and my first job plan. And I was, bear in mind I was a locum, right? So I was a little bit like, oh, I, I don't know if I can complain about this. I'm doing double the number of clinics it said in the advert. What turned out was that they counted Saturday and Sundays as one day. So only half the PA, so they didn't get paid half the PA. So I had, that's why it was double the number of clinics. But it wasn't until I pointed that out that they realised the mistake. So yes, check it. Be, uh, get someone else to check it if you're not sure. And the BMA are very, very happy to look at your job plans. So you can always send it to them. So at the point of interviewing or appointing, yeah. you, your job plan is yet to be negotiated. Like, Correct. Yeah. So it's, don't it's, get into that nitty-gritty. No, 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 no way. Yeah. It's when you sit down. After you've been appointed, you sit down with your clinical lead. Yeah. You then thrash out the details. Uh, but they will have put a version of the job plan in the advert, and it should be it should bear <coughs> resemblance to that. You know, they shouldn't <coughs> try and screw you over. It's like, oh, I'm, now you've been appointed, we also yeah, want you to do good. clinical lead and audit lead and blah blah blah. Yeah. And by the way, none of it's going to be paid for. So yeah. How much has your job changed from when you were first appointed as a consultant to now? Good question. Um, a lot, but then that's because when I first became a consultant and I was doing locums, I was covering for often other people who are on that leave or who are on sick leave and so I was doing their jobs. Um, my, let's say um, when I was got my permanent, what we call substantive post, um, it's changed quite a lot from that as well and that's because we've changed what we do. So, I mean the basics are the same, so I'm still doing 10 HTU service weeks a year, 3 general PEDs, which is a lot. Um, but for example, I now do my, my job plan is a lot of stuff to do with the spinal pathway, complex spinal patients. And for a while I was doing advice and guidance, that appeared in my job plan. Um, my clinics have dropped loads because they now want us to do more extra work in the winter. So I do a lot of extra winter shifts. So they therefore, to pay for that, uh, they've taken away clinics. So you can, you, know, you can either get paid more, or if the department's got money, which obviously never exists in the real world, or they take away other other of your PAs to balance it out. Um, yeah. So is the job plan regularly reviewed? Yeah, once a year. Okay. Is yeah. that as part of your appraisal? Or no, separate. Yeah, it should happen once a year. Um, I'm sure it 
doesn't with everyone. And some departments are much better organised than others. I'm sure there's people who haven't looked at their job plan in five years. And as I say, some people are more militant than others. Like some people don't really like, you know, don't care if I do this or that, like whatever. Um, whereas some people are were to rule and will only so it's kind of personality dependent and department dependent. Okay. And if you do it this makes sense if you do a twelve PA job, you get twenty percent extra of pay. Yes. You, get, you just it's just all yeah, but the, the amount that you get paid for a PA is set out by the national contract. And remember that changes over years. <clears throat> so when you see the job plan for a consultant advertised, it will say this is your basic wages on year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, and then year ten. And it goes up each year. And your on-call 5% supplement is on top of that yeah. basic pay. Yeah. And then there's a whole other can of worms to do with the CEAs. pensions part, which I'm not going to go into, because I don't really understand it. Uh, so I, I got a letter from the trust saying, well, you may have a huge bill for your... I mean, you sure you've seen it in the news, right? It's pension. And I decided my policy was that I was going to ignore it, because that's what I do with most things. And then I got a letter through the post saying, oh, you're all liable for like, all this money. And then I chat myself and got a accountant to come around who specialises in this sort of stuff. And he sat there for like two hours, two and a half hours, and talked to me about all this. So I didn't understand any of it. But then at the end of it, he went, now you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could have told me that at the start and saved me a lot of honour. Um, but it was close. And there is, uh, I don't think it'll affect you guys because hopefully by the time you're in, there'll be a solution with the government. In fact, there's a sort of, you know, like fudged solution at the moment. Um, but it mainly affects more senior consultants. But even just people two or three years uh, ahead of me are getting huge bills. So, uh, and they're all avoiding extra work and stuff at the moment. You've probably noticed it. Um, it's a big problem. But yeah, I don't really understand it. Okay. Um, I don't know what this slide is about. Let me see. Oh, yeah. So, starting a new job can be a bit daunting when you're a consultant. And it, it sort of... Um, depends how confident you are, how much of that acting up you've done, and where you work. Right, so for me, I finished a night shift on the Friday here as a registrar, my last ever night shift, and then on the Monday morning I came back into work as a consultant in the same place, and no one knew. Like, none of the nurses knew nothing. So they kind of learned over about six months. There's still people about six months later who weren't really sure. So, uh, and it depends, like, I don't really care about that stuff. I don't I don't like hierarchy and I'm not really into that sort of stuff. Some people are. So um, I remember a guy I worked with in cardiology, whilst we were there, he got appointed as a consultant and he did the thing where he was registrar on a Friday and then on the Monday he came in as a consultant. And uh, the, the, the difference was that on the Monday morning ward round in PICU, he was suddenly out of nowhere wearing a bright red blazer <laughs> and it's like it's fucking weird it's like why is Gareth wearing that red blazer and there's like, you know what picky wardrobe is about really big and everyone's sort of looking no one's said anything and then um, I can't remember who it was actually but someone sort of turned up to the wardrobe late and went oh a nice blazer Gareth and then everyone laughed and then it was all okay <laughs> I remember one of the surgeons as well he still works here 
and she was saying, well, we're not going to consult her. You've got to have a thing, she said, when you're a consultant. And she was going to get some useless piece of equipment that she was going to insist on being there for every operation. <laughs> she'd never use it, but she was going to insist it has to be there, and that was going to be her thing. So that these kind of um, weird cultural things go around that you need to do that. But you don't, like, it's up to you. Within your personalities, you decide how you're going to do it. I didn't really care, it didn't matter to me. Um, but you can, uh, I, I can understand how some people might find it a little bit awkward if you're going from one grade to another and how your interaction with the nurses works. Uh, and I think it, it, you know, I'm in a privileged position. I'm a, I'm a bloke. The way I interact with the nurses is like, you know, it, it's different from how you guys, some of you guys might feel. Some people feel they uh, want to get more respect or, a little, you know, uh, with a little bit more authority or whatever, and that's fine. How you do that is fine. How do you do it? If you go into a new hospital and no one's ever met you before and you turn up as the consultant, I think it is different. People will view you straight as a consultant and that's easier. Um, so there may be a little bit of a transition period where you feel you have to earn a little bit more authority, and that's fine. Okay. Uh, all right, okay. I'm not going these. I did this talk like three years ago, so this is a reminder for me, which is good. Okay, oh yeah. Um, yeah, no one, no one talked about that when I was a trainee. It's like, oh yeah, the consultants just know what to do. It's, you know, it's not like you magically suddenly go from not knowing very much to knowing everything just because you've got your CCT. It doesn't make sense, right? So I still, you know, I probably know less now than I did when I was at your level. I remember David Grant saying to me when I passed my uh, clinical finals, my MRCPCH, he said, you now know more than you'll ever know in your entire career. And I thought, that's a bit worrying. That uh, you're telling me this and you're running the unit today. Um, but he's sort of right in that the clinical knowledge, you know, all the little syndromes you remember and, you know, it's like if you think back to your anatomy knowledge now, when you were a medical student, you knew way more anatomy than you do now. So a, a second year medical student, I teach second year medical students, they would beat the shit out of you guys in an anatomy exam, wouldn't they? So it's similar. What, what you do is you you learn what you need to know to use and you need to you learn where you go to get information that you don't know and you become comfortable with things that you don't know all right it's fine if you don't know what's going on that's normal um and that's because you work as a team so there's always someone around who knows things there's people around to help we're not lone workers it's, it's very different being a hospital consultant than it is for example being a gp and they try as hard as they can to work as teams as well, but by the nature of their work, they do a lot of solo working. It's not like that as a consultant. You've always got a registrar, an SHO, you know, your nurse in charge, the other nurses, your colleagues. Um, there's loads of people around. So um, it's, it really is about teamwork. It's a bit of a cliche, and you'll talk about it a lot in your form and your interview, but it's really important as a consultant. Get as part of the team. Okay. Uh, we go to a lot of... I put occasionally on there. I just had boring before. I mean, a lot of boring meetings. Um, yeah, I don't think I realised when I was a trainee how many meetings there are across the hospital. And some of them are annoyingly pointless. Um, I think it's Elon Musk said that um, if uh, within the first five minutes you find that this meeting is not worth your time, then just walk out. I've not tried that, but I've tried it. <laughs> I might do it. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of meetings that go on. So we do a lot of that. Uh, okay, yeah. So this is um, this was again three years ago, but I didn't check my emails for less than twenty four hours, and then I took the screenshot right at seventy four. Uh, we get a lot of emails, is what I'm trying to say. Right, 
in the old days, uh, it was the intro that consultants had. You had lots of letters and things like that, but now it's, now it's emails. And Reg used to do this talk for the trainees. Uh, one of my colleagues, like he did it 20 years ago, whatever, and he used to show his intro to the, to the trainees. So that's my version of it. So lots of emails. So what sort of things do I get in my email? This was three years ago. Uh, there's a road to crisis. Can you find a middle grade? This is a common thing we'll get. <laughs> Patient X you saw last week hasn't gained any weight. Community nurses are worried about social situation. So you get some clinical stuff in those emails. That's why you can't just completely ignore them. But, you know, we always worry about that. So I don't check my emails. But I always worry like there's some one bit important clinical information. You hope that people will be sensible to pick up the phone to you if it's really important, but not always. And I've come across some significant things in emails where like, Jesus, I need to act on that. I wish someone had phoned me. Again, that's a very good question, right? Uh, I don't. Some people do. Um, my advice would be not to. I try to have a very clear um, demarcation between my work life and my home life. And I think that's important psychologically. It's not a it's like marathon, it's not a sprint. I, I'd like to be in this career for you know, you know, a few years yet. And I think if you, it's very easy to slip into that. And when I first became a consultant, I did. I got a laptop and it's because of this ludicrous situation where I was being apparently employed part-time so I was working supposedly three days a week but I had so much work I had more than five days a week work so I was working on my days off at home whilst trying to look after the kids so it was just a stupid situation and I think I would advise you not to get into that it's a real slippery slope and I know colleagues who do it and it's not it's not great you know burnout is a real thing and um just need to look after yourself really. and actually I think it's not necessary as long as you're clear what the boundaries are and you look after yourself and you make it clear for example you can leave um, auto replies and emails saying if there's anything clinically urgent phone me or phone me or call consultant I'm not going to be back until whatever um, yeah day six forms I'm, oh yeah this is what I'm going to say um, when I was in that period of being a laker, so the, the top tip that everyone always gives you when you become a consultant is say no to everything, you've heard that? And that's what everyone says. Now that's all well and good, and it is true, but if, for example, you're like me and you're appointed as a locum and you've not got a permanent job, well, you have to say yes to everything, because otherwise, how are you going to get a job? And if you start saying no, well, I'm not really going to get a job. So I said yes to literally everything for two years which meant I ended up with a lot of ridiculous unpaid roles in this hospital. So I'm still lead for uh, the medicine safety lead for the hospital. I'm, uh, what else am I lead for? Fluid lead for the hospital. Uh, I've got lo loads of stupid little roles which aren't paid for, but create a lot of work. So anyway, there we go. Yeah, yeah if you're appointed substantive straight away, you can afford to just say no thanks. I just need to settle down being a consultant. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, I got that one. That was a good one. Got that type of question. That one's not true. Uh, okay, yeah. So on calls, you're talking about um, on calls from home or being in hospital. So they are different, okay. And um, I think I worried a little bit about this when I first started, but certainly talking to other people, this is the big thing that they're worrying about. What's it like being on call from home? So you're all used to being in the hospital and getting bleeped. Uh, it's quite different from being at home because if you get bleeped, you can just go and see the patient. Right? If you're sort of a neurotic person, you're worried, and you're 
just go and see the patient and be like, right, I've seen them, I know they're okay. You can't do that at home. Well, you could, but you just be coming in all the time and you'd never get any sleep and therefore you probably wouldn't want to go full shift. So it's a different skill, but I think it's okay. It's something that you learn and you you can uh, get better at. Okay? So um, <coughs> I think top tips for that would be in, probably in a smaller DGH is a bit easier, but getting to know your team is really useful. That's quite hard here because we've got 40, 50 registrars, and I don't know all of you really well, I haven't worked with all of you, um, but if the people you have worked with and you've got a level of their understanding and their knowledge, that really helps. So when someone phones up and says, I'm not worried about this kid, and it's a registrar I know well and I'm confident with them, then I'm like, okay, fine, I know them. But if I don't know them, or I do know them and I'm not that confident in them, then I will have a different level of how I handle that situation. So that'd be the first top tip, is know your, um, know your registrar. Try and preempt problems, so I always phone them, I always phone out the registrars at the beginning and I just talk through any issues, um, get a good handover from people during the day of any problem issues around the night, uh, around the hospital. And yeah, it just comes with experience, really. Um, we always ask the, you guys when you phone us to tell us that do you want us to come in or is it just advice? And um, if you want, um, yeah, get them to say that and then say, right, okay, can you just give me five minutes? I'm just going to wake up and then we're going to phone you back. That's absolutely fine. And the other thing you can say is, okay, when they've told you the problem, right, that's great. Uh, I'm going to phone you back in 20 minutes. We've had to think about that. Or, you know, we're going to Google the, the guideline on it or whatever. So that's absolutely fine. <coughs> so you have to make a panic decision when you're half asleep about something. Okay, but I think, yeah, initially there's a level of anxiety to it which goes away once you get used to it. Uh, this is the big thing I think about being a consultant is really you're used to um, deferring decisions a little bit as a registrar or at least making a decision but knowing really that the ultimate responsibility doesn't lie with you and there's a bit of backup there. You know, you tell the consultant, oh, I've done this and then you know, well, really, if the shit hits a fan, they're going to be the ones who settle it. Case made a decision. So when you're a consultant, that you are that is it starts with you. And again, I think initially that's a little bit nerve-wracking, but it gets better with time, um, and you get more confident the more experience you get. So don't worry about it because it does get better. Um, there's a tendency when you first start to try not to make decisions. That's not a good route to go down either, because. Uh, it just doesn't work well. People are relying on you to be the decision maker, and if you don't make decisions, then the whole thing falls apart, and you lose, your team loses confidence in you. The nurses really pick up on that. You know, it's like freaking out. Okay, this patient for three days, but really, just someone needed to just make a decision and get the kid out or whatever. So, and that's what you're being employed for, really. So, try and practice that a little bit as you get more senior. When you're doing those acting up days, try and make a decision and see what happens. Okay. When you're first starting. Um, and at the beginning, or if you feel nervous about it, or you've got less experience, then always as your guide, something Steve Jones taught me, which is always, if, you're, if you've got a genuine situation where you could make one or two decisions and you're not sure which one of those to make, default to safety. So just go with whatever the safe decision is. If you are really certain, with your, oh no, this is the right way to do, I'm fine, by managing this conservatively, that's great, fine. But if you're genuinely not sure, and there's general sort of equipoise, then default to safety, and that's always good. Bit of advice, really, I think. Uh, okay, does everyone know who this is? Okay. 
again. So increasingly not everyone knows who he is because he's not always on the wall. So this is Reg Pagonia. So um, my other top tip for being a consultant is to get yourself a Reg Pagonia. And what I mean by that is someone senior in your department who's been there, seen it all, done it all, okay? And it's really, really important. As I say, when you become a consultant, it's not like overnight you suddenly know how to do everything. And not only that, when you become a consultant, there's suddenly a whole load of new stuff that you've never even heard of that you've got no idea what to do with. So you need someone to uh, run things past, sound them out, does this sound sensible, blah, blah, blah. So Reg is, is uh, the best one of these, I think. He's absolutely phenomenal. He just knows everything, and he's very sensible, and he's very kind and uh, calm and everything considered. So he's, he's the perfect Reg. But get yourself uh, your own Reg when you start in your department. And... Um, and let them know, and they should, you know, this should happen to be honest. When you first start, they should say, Come and talk to me, you know, but otherwise, say, Let's do mind. So, um, I when I started was knocking on his door at least once a week, if not more than that, several times a week to ask, I don't know what to do with this, or, I've never heard of this, what do I do about this? Uh, and then as time went by, I was sort of knocking once a week, then once every couple of weeks, once a month, and now it's not very often, now it's once every few months I go and talk to him about something I don't know what to do. So, it, it I've noticed that in my own practice that it gets, I'm having to ask less and less and that's how it should be I hope it will be isn't it? you get more experience and therefore you need to ask less but it just means that it's not a bad thing when you first start off to need a lot I need a lot of help that's fine well you're talking about an informal mentoring process aren't you? but yes. there is a formal mentoring there is. process yeah. isn't there so you can ask for a mentor it's slightly different the, f- the mentoring process is again about your well-being okay how you uh, to make sure that you're not getting bullied in yeah. your job plan to make okay. sure you're getting your SPA that kind of stuff yeah. what I'm referring to really is someone in house that I can ask directly about clinical yeah. stuff I've never like oh, this, I've got this letter that I don't know if I've heard of this right? what is this and he knows the answer alright uh, oh yeah one thing about being a consultant is that it is better than being a trainee. No one ever talks about this. It is better, all right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That is light at the end of the tunnel. Otherwise, what would be the point of spending, in my case, eight years, and some of you guys' cases a lot longer than that, doing all these shifts, working for horrible consultants, <laughs> doing stupid exams and whatever else, and then you get to the end of it and it being horrible. Well, what, what would be the point of that? No, it is better than being a trainee. And there's no... Don't be, there should be any shame in that it's a good thing it's, it's more fun you get ultimate responsibility for your patients that's a real that's really rewarding my patients families know who I am they phone up they write me thank you cards they send me Christmas cards um, you get to see them again you get to see them once they're better uh, you're in one place you don't have to keep moving hospitals the pay's better uh, the hours are usually a bit better um, it's just better Right, so I think, and I think that's a good thing. I don't think we talk about it enough. Right, it's a positive message. It is better being a consultant than it is being a trainee. Um, so some of you have actually done this already. Some stepping up days. So um, these are apparently very good. I never had them when I did it, but I'm told that they're very useful and they cover some of this stuff. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, what was I going to talk about? So um, one of the things that. Um, you're expected to do as a consultant is you're, you're expected to take on a leadership role, right? That's essentially what it is. You're leading a department, you're leading a team um, of junior colleagues, of nursing staff, of allied health professionals, uh, whatever else. So I saw this and I thought this was quite good. This is um, 
Jurgen Klopp talking about leadership. Let's see if it works. Oh no, the volume's gone. We got it working, didn't we? All right. Let's see if this works. No, it's not going to work. Oh. You're going to have to read what he says. She got it working, didn't she? What did she press? Oh, that, that's it, that's it. And I'll go back on there. Is that it? And then you'll see the little icon. That one? Yes, you know, you cannot be the, the, the last who comes in and the first who goes out. That's how it is. You have, don't have to be always the first coming in or the last going out. It's um, that, but like this, but you have to be an example as well. That's how it is. You have enough confidence, and that's very important for a leader because confidence. If I would expect from myself that I know everything, you know, the best in everything, I couldn't have confidence. But I don't expect expect that. I, I know I'm good in a couple of things, really good in a few things, and. Um, that's enough. What I can do, my confidence is big enough that I can really let people grow next to me. It's no problem. I need experts around me. It's really, really very important that you're empathic, that you, that you try to understand the people around you, and that you give real support to the people around you. And then everybody can act. That's what leadership is. Have strong people around you with a better knowledge in different departments than yourself. Don't act like you know everything. Be ready to admit that I have no clue in the moment, so give me a couple of minutes that I will have a clue probably. And that's exactly how I understand it. But it's not a real philosophy, it's just my way of life. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? Like, Jurgen Klopp's incredible, isn't he? Like, but um, I think that's directly uh, relevant to being a consultant. Everything he said there, he could have a consultant say the same thing. It's exactly that. It's not suddenly expecting yourself to know everything, but it's about how you can surround yourself with people who do. Um, and how you can support them, and then that's all good for everyone, isn't it? So yeah, very good. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, outpatient stuff. Just working. This is something that um, when you're training, sometimes you don't get enough exposure of, and uh, that's a bit of a shame. But you know, it's the nature of the work. So I'm just going to cover a few things that I never knew about until I started doing it. Okay, we do some cases. So uh, this is a four-year-old boy. He's weeing more than 30 times a day. Okay. He's otherwise well. He's thriving. No fevers, just in the daytime. Um, quite small volumes. He's not wetting himself. No dysuria, no polydipsia. What do you think? Anyone know what this is? I didn't. I had to go and knock on Reg's door for this. Is it a picture? Yeah, it is a picture. It's got a name though. Um, Mitchell, Mitchell, uh, it's not polyuria. Small volumes. So you're right, that is a thing. I just, before I came to see you guys, I went to see a patient on the Burns Wars who come in with a skull, but she's by the by, and I noticed his nappy was dragging along the floor. And that's a bit of a key sign of what you're describing. And it turned out that mum was drinking about four litres of Robinson squash a day. Oh, so he's got psychogenic polydipsia or yeah, behavioural polydipsia, which is common in the 18 months of those and stuff. Um, so yeah, I literally just saw that an hour ago. But no, that's not what this kid's got. He's only weighing small amounts. 
he's going to the loo every five ten minutes. Okay. So check his blood pressure, check his urine dips, all normal, normal examination. Sorry? Uh, no, but that's sort of that does happen as well. Okay. Anyway, so he's got something called parachyuria. Has anyone heard of this? No. So I have not heard of this, but I see it once every two or three clinics. But it's common. They see it a lot. And people worry about it. They think it's a kidney problem or something, whatever. Parachyuria is just a posh word for benign behavioural urinary frequency, and it's basically young kids. It can be any age, but it's typically that sort of. Um, primary school reception age child who needs, feel they need to go for wee all the time they just feel they need to go and every time they go they just pass a small amount that's the thing that differentiates it from the psychogenic polydipsia kids they're not actually weeing locked but you need to get that in the history so that you can tell the difference um, often gets worse when they're a bit anxious so it tends to be around that time of starting school um, and it's fine because you can just explain to them there's nothing wrong with you, it's fine, reassure the parents and then the, the idea is that you encourage them to reduce gradually the frequency with which they go to the toilet, so sometimes they come to you and they go every 10 minutes when you're trying to get, get them to go every 15 minutes and then every 20 minutes and you can do behavioural ward charts and things like that and in the meantime when they're getting quite anxious and they really feel like they need the loo then you use distraction activities and usually just a bit of time, a bit of reassurance and that but I'd never ever heard of that. And a kid came to the clinic and was like, I can clear you what's, you know, I got some kidney problem. But Reg was like, oh, it's like you. So there you go. Uh, what's this? Oh, yeah. I think we saw one of these the other day. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. So a seven year old girl referred with signs of early puberty. So some of you guys will have done endocrine with you. Have you done endocrine? Oh, no one, I find. So you're like me, so I'd never done any of I was like, I want to do this stuff. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm suddenly a consultant and expected to be an expert and fountain of all knowledge on it. So there we go. So what do you want to know about this girl with signs of early puberty? Is it the right order? Uh, Excellent. What is the right order? So, breastfeeding first. Okay, that works. So what's that say? Do that. Which is? Yeah. 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 What's the other one? Okay, excellent. What's Adramaki? Hair, sweating, body hair, blah, blah, blah. Okay, excellent. So we want to know that. Any other things you want to know about her? Height, weight. Height, weight with every kid. More thick features. Yeah, excellent. That's definitely relevant, isn't it? Okay, those are some good things. So, uh, it's been the last six months. She's got wispy pubic hair, body odour, uh, no bleeding, and she's otherwise well and thriving. She's got adrenarchy. Excellent. She's got adrenarchy. Okay. So, but to do that, we're doing, we doing examination as normal. Right, very good. So, she's got premature adrenarchy. So, this is really common. It's in pretty much every clinic I do. Um, and it's girls who have signs of pubic hair and body odour in less than eight or boys less than nine but they don't have the other aspects of puberty so if you've just got adrenarchy but you've not got the other things then that's fine that's just normal um, if she's got the other things if she's got breast development or she's having periods then that's different that is premature uh, or precocious puberty and you need to investigate it um, it's often in girls who are a bit tall a bit overweight and it can vary in different ethnicities um, 
and it's their adrenal glands basically it's not true puberty is the point so you just explain to parents this is just normal so investigations if you're really absolutely definitely sure that this is all it is then you probably don't need to do anything that's what the guidance would say I think a lot of the time we do do a couple of baseline things just to reassure ourselves and the parents especially if the kid is quite a bit younger because they can come in quite early with this and so the things I do are bone age has everyone heard of that? I'm not really. <laughs> so you get an x-ray of the wrist and the radiologists will have a guess, well it's not a guess, they've got a formula about how old the kid is. <laughs> and they say they've got a chart and they go, oh, this kid is this old. And then you say, oh no, they're not, they're this old. <laughs> and then the difference between those two things tells you how worried you need to be. All right. uh, so if the child was dramatically older on their bone age, and they'll give you a sensor actually, um, than they are in real life then you think well maybe they are in early puberty and if their hormones are going crazy then maybe they are and a urine steroid profile is quite useful as well to pick up um, other defects which can cause early puberty uh, but then once you've done these things if everything's normal you can just say alright don't worry about it it's fine okay I don't know what this one is oh yeah have done all those things and actually then been stuck with a spurious result like I was just thinking, actually, do you really want to do those? So, good question, right? So, whenever you send a result, you've got to be prepared to act on the findings mm. and know what to do. That's a just good rule of thumb for all medicine, right? Um, so, uh, no, I haven't, but I have with other things. Well, you've t- sent the test off and that shit, I'll show you the send off, I don't know what to do. Um, but no, I haven't in this situation. But I think I only send it if I'm not sure. Yeah. So, if you're completely sure, then I don't need to send it. And then if I do get an abnormal result, then I'll speak to somebody who knows about these things. Okay, so 14-year-old has been referred with chronic abdominal pain. So this is definitely every clinic, and that's just the nature of general paediatrics. And this, I think, well, let's talk about. So what do you want to know about this abdominal pain? Can you tell about the actual pain? So? What do you tell about the actual pain? So yeah. where is it? Yeah. Yeah, pain history, excellent. And the red flags like waking up and lying awake or something. Yeah. Brilliant, so we're going to plot that growth and all that. Okay. So, it's impact on the child's life, yeah. Brilliant. Head's assessment, she's 14, isn't she? Yeah. Okay, ready to tell you. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, definitely going to need to cover that. So, it's been going off 12 months, periambilical. It's intermittent, she gets bloating, occasional loose stools, never hard, she never any blood. Feels tired, gets headaches, no weight loss. She's missing school, there might be some bullying. That's her BMI, that's her blood pressure, she's got a normal examination. I mean, this is like every other history I take it. I'm sure for you guys as well, but like this is so common. And it's the thing I find hardest to deal with. Okay. Because it's non-specific, because I'm not trying to cause. Um, so it's difficult. So non-specific abdominal pain is what it's referred to, and that's what the mice use and things. But that probably um, encompasses different things within it. So I, I find it really hard to do with these patients, to be honest, because they keep coming back and nothing you do makes any difference, and it causes an unbelievable amount of anxiety. Uh, but you never ever find anything wrong with them. I think it's useful to try and work out which of the phenotypes within non-specific abdominal pain the, the kid has. So a big... Um, percentage of them will have constipation so if you can identify those and treat those ones then that 
uh, helps. And it's not always really obvious that they've got constipation, especially the teenagers. The parents haven't got a clue what their toilet habits are like. They don't want to tell you. So it's not always obvious. Um, but I would say that's probably like half of them maybe. And then the rest of them are some of them are irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, some of them get a bit of dyspepsia. Some of them less frequently, much rarer really, abdominal migraine, maybe the younger kids. Um, and then some of them generally there's no obvious medical cause and it's probably a bit of somaticization so children somaticize a lot so there's probably a large element of that so come on what do you do about it well your job that's what you've got to always remember is what's your job you're not there to be a miracle worker and cure every patient but your job is definitely to pick up something organic that is there right you can't deny that so you've got to look out for those things so look for those red flags weight loss falter and growth bleeding fever persistent unexplained diarrhea, jaundice, family history of inflammatory bowel disease, urinary symptoms, anything abnormal on examination. Uh, the NICE guidelines don't recommend that you do any investigations on every child, but you should consider a TTG, and that's just because celiac disease is so common, you'll pick it up in you know, a percentage of your patients. So that's the one thing that you should think about doing, but otherwise you shouldn't need to investigate. However, these kids get investigated a lot. Um, sometimes that's warranted, but often it, it's making the somaticization worse because you're reinforcing a concept that there's a medical problem here. So you can make things worse for yourself by over-investigating. So I would caution you against doing that unless you really have uh, obvious red flag features. So what do you do about it? Because often you do all these things, there's none of these here. The TTG is negative. They're completely well, but they keep coming back to you with, with pain. Well, it's difficult. So it's difficult. Is it? There's no right or wrong answer to this, and I still am working out what the best way to do it. But I will sometimes trial some constipation treatment if I'm not sure whether that's the cause. You try and reassure them. There's some a certain percentage of families that is just enough. They're just coming to you to make sure there's nothing wrong, because Uncle Jimmy had bowel cancer, and that's what they thought it was. And everyone's been really worried about bowel cancer. And you just say no, it's not. That's enough, and then that's fine. And then in that situation, you want to uh, rapidly de-escalate things and non-medicalise it. So don't bring them back to clinic. There's a big temptation to do that, just for your own reassurance. And if you're, if you're sure there's nothing wrong, sometimes bringing them back to clinic is, makes the situation worse. Because again, you're reinforcing that this is a medical problem. Um, some abdominal migraine prophylaxis, that's a bit controversial. There's no evidence for it. Probiotics. Um, I went for a phase of giving the irritable bowel syndrome kids probiotics. There is a little bit of weak evidence, and I recommend it for the ones you think have got IBS. Uh, well, they actually say re they recommend it as a trial for non-specific abdominal pain, but I think if it works, it probably only works in the kids you think have got IBS. Um, but, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, we're probably prescribing placebo, and you know you're going to get 20% effect with your placebo, so there you go. Is that, is that prescribable, or do you advise them to go and get some abdominal lymphoblastic? I, I, we, we have, um, well, which we can prescribe, yeah. Our pharmacy has something called VSL, Hatch 3, which is a probiotic, which we can prescribe. And um, you know, I'm sure you're aware, that the placebo effect is greater if you can make a song and dance about the medical aspect of it, right? So you know that the placebo effect is much stronger with an injection than it is with a pill? And you know that different colour pills are more effective than other colour pills. So similarly, if I prescribe uh, my probiotic, it will have a bigger effect than if they go and buy Yakult from Asda's. Is that ethical? 
<laughs> we'll leave that for another session. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. With another consultant. So you certainly go back to the beginning with the history of the examination and yeah. you make it clear to the parents I'm starting again okay. as in doing that. But you don't necessarily have to repeat all the investigations. Yeah. And you want to be careful not to do that. You also have to be careful with you know, so obviously Within the ESO, there may be you know psychological problems and blah, blah, blah. one of the other things you get with these children with chronic symptoms and chronic pain is um, factitious or induced illness, or we speak much as housing by proxy. And one of the red flags for identifying that is shopping around different consultants. So just be careful if you're inheriting a patient from someone else. Um, just think about it. I'm not saying it is that's what it is, but you just think I inherited kid who'd moved from another area from Nottingham and I didn't know anything about him because they come from Nottingham so there's no medical notes I just had a note from the GP saying please come see this kid who's got 15 things wrong with them and I met the kid and I was like I can't put my finger on anything that's wrong with this child they, they look fine I can't, you know but mum's got all these symptoms that she's saying so this is just weird so I sort of um, did a bit of a delaying tactic where I think I um, got some investigation done and then needed repeating and then, so I'll see you in a few weeks and then um, in those few weeks I got a phone call from her consultant in Nottingham who said oh you want to give you a heads up about this kid I'm a bit worried she keeps coming back in there's nothing really wrong with the kid it's feeling a bit munchy and that was really useful then I was like oh, okay right <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean always be careful you've always got to make your own decisions and reassess yourself and satisfy yourself that there's no, nothing worrying here but um, it's a well recognised risk factor for FII that patients move areas and shop and move with different specialties as well. Um, really, sorry. Yeah. So, I knew when I did GP and Do you want to see Amber? Well, I'm still carrying the bleach, okay. so, so okay, I can pop out again. Yeah. <laughs> Space. I mean, I think. Are you saying for purely for so abdominal I, pain and not for depression? Or is so just for the IBS. Yeah. Lots of worked quite well in quite a few of the adults that I treated. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, SSRIs, you need to be very careful with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people and yeah, there's a warning not that long ago about spikes of suicide stuff in teenagers. But um, I think that will be best done under a psychiatrist. But um, for IBS, I'm not aware of it. But one thing I would say, and that is, does take onto this, is probably what these kids need is uh, psychology, right? Now, um, I put exclamation mark because we have no access to psychology in our outpatient service, and it's a massive gaping hole in our service. If the kids in hospital, then I do. So we've got a really great liaison psychiatry psychology team. Um, but as soon as they leave the building, I've got nothing, and that's the most frustrating thing. That's probably what they need really. And there's a guideline for it. Okay, there's a, a, a there's a nice one, and we've got a local one which is sort of. Taken from if you have a vague concern about FII, but you don't have enough to actually make an accusation, how do you kind of document that? So or how do you take that forward? That's the most common situation. It's very rare that you get this is FII. Yeah. 
And if you look at every FII case, they've been through months and months and months of and that situation. So what you do is you're very, very careful. Because the evidence of that FII is that if you confront too early, they up the ante. So whereas they were coughing up blood, they suddenly come in dead. And you just need to be really careful with it. So you, you don't intervene until you, what you do is just carefully collect evidence. Everything gets written down, everything gets recorded. Um, you widely consult colleagues, you never deal with that on your own, it is a fucking can of worms. So you widely consult with all your peer group, your colleagues, your main doctor for safeguarding and the main nurses for safeguarding so that everyone is aware that you're thinking about it and you collect everything, everything gets written down. And then at a time when you are able to, then you take it further. Um, Actually, I can't even talk about the case. I was going to tell you about a case that we've had in this hospital, but I remembered I'm not allowed to talk about it. So exactly. Right, so uh, outpatient tips. So these are some examples of things that I never really came across until I was a consultant uh, that we quite commonly see. So there's things that, that you won't necessarily be comfortable with and you will be getting them in outpatients. Don't worry about it. It gets better with practice, okay? Um, I've definitely got better outpatient work in the last three years. Before that, I didn't do much of it. And I you know, still see myself as an acute pediatrician, seeing sick kids on the ward, really. Um, and so it was a skill I had to learn. But it's like any other skill, you will pick it up when it comes to practice. Um, read the letters before the clinic, okay? So it's okay to look stuff up. Anyone know what poliosis is? The patch of uh, non-melanin, non-melanin hair, so like like white area. It's associated with some syndromes or it can be idiopathic. I've never heard of that. It came got sent to my clinic in South Bristol. Suddenly I'm the expert. So um, it's fine to look stuff up, that's okay. Um, read your letters beforehand because that's much better if you uh, sort of have some authority with the parents and you can talk about it than if you're just looking up in front of them, that's what I'd say. And sometimes also you can leave patients off your list that don't need to be there. It's much worse, and this still happens, when a patient's been triaged into a clinic and they're expected to come and see a rheumatologist and you are not, then if you look that up three days before and then you can at least phone the parent and say, I'm really sorry, you've accidentally been booked into my clinic and really need to see a rheumatologist and then we'll arrange that for you. Um, and I've had that situation very embarrassing, particularly patients who've come from where a patient who drove all the way down from Gloucester to see a specialist and ended up with me and I completely wasn't with him. So um, it's better if you can plan that out in advance. Um, avoid, so this is what I was talking about earlier. Avoid the temptation to bring patients back for your own reassurance. You, you need to. One of the things about being a consultant is to learn about your own personality and what sort of person you are. And if you are a sort of person who is quite nervous and anxious, just it's fine. But just know that you're that sort of person and constantly, you know, just check yourself every now and again. Say, am I just bringing this patient back because I'm worried about them? Because um, that is a bit of a route to you know, disaster, you'll find you'll just have a huge backlog of patients, your pending list will be massive, the managers will be on about you going, why have you got 50 patients who are waiting three months over what they're supposed to be seeing, um, parents will be phoning up all the time, it's just a nightmare, so, um, you know, try not to treat yourself. So I use open appointments for everything, all the time, so I, I don't see very many patients again, Except the ones who I, you're obviously chronic problems, complex problems, who I do need to see again. But I use open appointments all the time. I, in fact, I don't discharge that many. So I sort of leave it with the parents and make it quite a kind of, they like that families like the option to be able to phone you up rather than have to go through their GP again, who often has never done any pediatrics. 
say, um, I use open appointments all the time. We call them patient-initiated follow-up. Same principle, yeah. Um, yes, and I find that if you do that, obviously a certain percentage will come back, and that's fine, but it's much, much lower than if you followed everyone up and they all came back and it's for no reason. I've, the other thing I've observed people doing is uh, bringing back patients to tell them results. Why? Just write them a letter or phone them up. You know, that's, it's just a waste. You know, if you bring someone back in and go, oh yes, little Jimmy's results from his normal, see you later. Well, that was a complete waste of time, wasn't it? So just, uh, you don't need to do that. Um, keep useful things, keep useful guidelines in the folder. So on my desktop, I've got a folder of useful guidelines that I, that I access all the time. Um, well, it tells you a lot about my job, that the main thing I use on my desktop is the Bristol store <coughs> that gets opened every day. Uh, and a similar one for useful parent information, you know, until the day when we get standardised hospital branded patient information leaflets for everything, but I've got to load that answer that you've got to say. Uh, and know your local services, and that really is something that you tend to get to learn once you're a consultant and isn't always apparent when you're a registrar. But you know, who's out there in the community to help with different things like enuresis and soy and you know, whatever else. Uh, oh, yeah, dictation that's a skill that you <coughs> learn, okay? Um, it, 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 it's not well, it isn't always natural for people, and um, your first letters will be crap, and that's okay, it just takes practice. So, uh yeah, keep it concise. It's a, it's a record of what you've done, but really, not really many other people will read it other than you and the parents. So just bear in mind what your target audience is. Um, it's not really the GP. I know we, so you can write to the parents directly if that helps you. Um, or you can write to the GP, but just remember that the GP probably won't read any of it other than your top bit, which says action for GP. None. And then they'll just throw it away say really this is for you so that you know when they come back what it is you did and it's a record of what you, you know, did and for the parents they will read it so no jargon that's it any questions So um, before you come in, they will have made their decision. Do, do you know that? Pretty much. CCT. For your in your ARCP, whenever you go to your ARCP, pretty much we've made the decision before you come in the room. Yeah, you've got, Russell used to go up and say, "Before we start, don't worry." Yeah. Come on. As we're sitting down, you go that come on So it's not. It shouldn't feel like an interview or whatever because the decision has been made. Because so that nothing you do on the day changes the outcome because that's the whole point of it, right? You've evidence you're learning. And so before you come in, we look for your e-portfolio and what they, so it varies from DNA to DNA because I'm aware that some of you guys are Peninsula, who's Peninsula? Yeah, okay, so I cannot speak for Peninsula, I've never sat on an ARCP in Peninsula. Okay. But it varies from DNA to DNA, so for example, uh, I am aware that Midlands is very different from how it's interpreted within Severn. You may find that there's going to be a change because we've now got a new head of school and that's where the culture comes from the head of school. But let's say up until now, the way the seven deanery has done it, so under Russell and Tom before him and David before him, the culture was a bit more relaxed, let's say, than it is in Midlands. 
and it was very much a case of we just want you to have a be able to demonstrate a broad um, level of evidence across the curriculum. So you have to tag every single thing, but you've just got to show that you've got evidence of learning in all the different areas. I'm about to see something. <coughs> yeah. I had like finally RCP, Alex said to me, she wanted every key comp. Yeah, like, every okay. Yeah. And I had two and a half years of backlogging for the old curriculum, so yeah. some things were like seven and some were nothing. And I had to just meticulously go through Yes, that has been changed because it used to be um, everything. Certainly when I did it. So I would warn people. Not just the level three, but like level no, no, three. No, no, if you just, if you just, no, no, just level three. Yeah. If you just link the two that you're naming. Yeah, that's a given. I'm done level two. Five key capabilities, you have to link each one individually. So for you. It's random as anything, and you're like, okay. What evidence have I got for that one? Yeah. Well, I think when I, because when I did it, this has changed in that when I did it, I put up a piece of evidence and link it to like 50 things. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now yeah. I think you're maximum three, is it, or two, or something like that? You have to put a reason why you're two domains. Yeah. So that's a bit of a change. And every new person that comes in, you know, the head of school now, they've just been appointed, may have a different view. It's um, Maria. Maria and Southfield. Yeah. So I don't know how she'll interpret things, but. Previously, that's how they, they take. So, uh, the Midlands Deanery, um, they used to want every single thing evidence. No, that's why I came and, from there. Uh, do, yeah. there was a, the TPD was really old school, and yeah. she literally wanted you to write achieved or not achieved around every yes. comment. And things like, um, I met someone who from was at Deanery, and they every single clinic they did, they had to log every patient they saw. Yeah. 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 So every clinic, they'd finish the clinic and they'd spend an hour putting every patient. Yeah. So I, I don't know now what I'm expected to do. I've sort of taken a break because I've had two map meetings. Yeah. Now I'm just like, oh crap, I've got to get into the portfolio again. I don't know what's expected now. Well, I think, have a, a I would have a chat with your, um, have a chat with your, the TPD and, you know, to get a sense check, but as I say, up until now, it was it was not like the Midlands, and it was much more a case of we want to see a broad base of learning. Yeah, Well, that, that's the other thing. So it's changed, isn't it? There's le- less boxes. So it may be that they want everything ticked because in the old curriculum, there's thousands of boxes, and it was a bit stupid asking you to tick them all. Whereas now, it's a bit more generic. You will need it for the end, though. Right? Yeah, so definitely the end. No, like if you are, if you are, yeah, this year, and you are doing fine, and you don't have any concerns about your progress, you might not be asked to come to it, but you can always request one. So if you're getting to the end of your ST7, you think, shit, I just need a bit of a rain check here, just tap in with someone, you can always request one, just to let you know. So, so apparently, towards the end of this year, so it's a national thing. It's from exchange. Yeah, it's yeah. So you, it used to be a bit of a careers advice session. Yeah, yeah. So, so you come in, they say you pass a year, what do you want to do with your life? Oh, why don't you have a go at this or do this? That's how it's been The other thing is what constitutes evidence so like you know don't worry that you have to have done the CBD on every 
what, like you can evidence by doing a reflective piece, right? So you say like, oh, there's a box here that I've got a tick on congenital heart disease. Like I haven't done any cardiology. Just read the um, whatever archives educational bit on congenital heart disease for general paediatrician. Reflect on it. There's your evidence. Just stick it up on a word document. So um, you can be a bit more creative with it. You don't have to worry that you haven't got a CBD for every single thing. You can evidence it how you want. Yeah. <clears throat> I just ask a question about um, applying for consultant jobs. So I get the impression that most people don't get a substantive post the first time around. Or, or a number yeah, of not everyone, yeah. How does that work in terms of with the grace period? And what happens if you get to the end of the grace period, that six or 12 months, and you've not secured the post? Um, is that just very, not really happen? No, it does happen. Um, I mean, technically, you're unemployed. <laughs> so this very nearly happened to me lots of times because my contract kept ending and then I was like, I'm going to be unemployed. But usually there's work around. Yeah, yeah, fellow yeah. There's a lot of posts. There's fellow posts. Fellow posts there's, yeah. um, there's loads of fellow posts. But, and, there's lo- and there's local consultants posts and things like that. Do CCTs not sort of invalidate them? I think it's still there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Once you've got your CCT... You, so the process works, you get, you get your outcome, whatever it's called, from the, the, the outcome six, and then you can use that, you get, you get a form from that, which then is signed by the head of school and the deputy or whatever it is, and then you send that to the college, and the college say, yep, you're good, you've completed your training, then a form gets sent to the GMC, and you get put on the specialist register. Once you're on the specialist register, you are able to be appointed as a consultant in that specialty anywhere in the UK or anywhere that recognises that qualification so and that doesn't go away. You just have to do within six months of the CCT Yes. Like yeah. How do they decide when you get your race? Do you get much more? Uh, I mean, so... You're bottom so, of the pile. Yeah, the priority is um, people within training and then grace period is where yeah, I right. was. Which is why I think I got put where I was already working. Which is like a waste of time. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that, that has become a thing in the last five years. Taunton had a good go at that, but I'm not aware no, if they're no. still doing it. Have they abandoned it now? They did it for a while. They, it was only because there was wedge gaps at the time. Yeah. So that was the only place I was aware of doing it, although I think around the country there are other... <laughs> It isn't common. Whether it will become more common, I don't know. There doesn't seem to appear to be any end in sight with the lack of people your grade. So therefore, there's lots of um, gaps. You know, twenty-five percent plus gaps on raters. So people are doing whatever they can to try and fill those gaps. So it might be, it might become more common. Yeah, I don't know. It's not a bad thing to take. If you take one of those jobs, just look very clearly at what their expectation is afterwards. So you don't want to sign up for a substantive post, which is forever half registrar, half consultant. Yeah. That is a nightmare, right? Usually, I think the way Taunton did it was it was a sort of local post for like a year. And that's great because you then build your CV. You know, it'd be a bit like my two years as a local, mm-hmm. and just build your CV. Um, 
not have to be a nightmare because in Derby they've created these posts and actually they've become really desirable because a full-time post includes a weekend as a registrar, one in four, or what, or um, one, I can't remember, one in six, but they and they only end up doing two days in the week. Like so, they they're basically so being paid full time, there, yeah. um, and they're um, just they can combine their childcare and stuff. So actually, they were yeah, do something you want to do. Sometimes it's nice to have as well. Sometimes just at my kind of front door. Sure, but one maybe not when you're fifty-five. Well, no, exactly, and yeah. that's why you want to be stuck. Yeah. So just have an idea of where it is they anticipate the post going, or and you know, try not to get yourself shafted. Basically, what I'm saying. Yeah.